Good morning, New City. How are you all doing this morning? Oh, you know what? I forgot my water bottle. Excuse me. I'm going to need this. Whatever reason, my voice is playing tricks on me. My name is Scott McDougall. I'm one of the elders here at New City, and it's, I know we know most of you guys, but for those of you who don't know me, that's who I am. I'm not some random guy hopping up here, and I'm excited to be here with you this morning as we get to continue our, our summer series in the book of Hebrews entitled, Jesus is Better, Greater, More. And as we've been going through this book together this summer, I've just been reminded of an old saying, a very old saying, actually, often attributed to St. Augustine, which is the new is the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And nowhere is that more evident than within the pages of Hebrews. The author of this book that we've been going through, this fascinating book, more than maybe any other author in the New Testament, helps us unlock the Old Testament scriptures so that we better understand the New Testament. As he was the Jewish Christians in his day in the first century who were wrestling with pressures both from the Jewish religious authorities and from the Roman authorities to return to their former ways. The author goes to great lengths to remind his audience that the Christian faith is not new or novel, but is ancient. It's not an addendum or an add-on to the Jewish religion, but it's the fulfillment of it. And as Andy noted a couple of weeks ago, the book of Hebrews almost, almost serves as an exposition on Matthew 5.17, where Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And over the last several weeks, we've looked at how the author of Hebrews delved into the Old Testament, contending for the better, greater, and more of Christ's ministry. How Jesus is better than the the prophets of the Old Testament. How he is greater than the angels in heaven. How he's more worthy of glory and honor than Moses. And how he offers a true Sabbath rest to his people a better and more lasting rest than was offered by Joshua. Over and over, by comparison and by contrast, the author continually points to the surpassing greatness of Christ and all these things. And and this morning, we're going to stay on this course as the author, kind of building on a theme he's briefly teased in the first three chapters, begins to argue here more fully that in Jesus, we have a greater high priest than Aaron and his descendants. Now, his assertion here might not strike us today as being earth-shattering, but to the initial Jewish Christian readers of this letter, this would, have been, this would have been truly radical. It would have represented a sea change in their understanding of how they were to approach and relate to God. But I really don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So before we get started, if you guys would open your Bibles with me, we're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and we're going to read through Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as he says in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a priest or a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just, we just thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. We thank you for your spirit in our midst, Lord. We thank you for the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, we just ask that this morning you would open our hearts to hear from you. You would open our minds to hear from you anew this morning, Lord, that your word would pierce us this morning, God, that your spirit would work in us, God, that we would not leave your word unchanged, God. Just pray that you would use this message this morning, Lord, to speak to us. Lord, would you speak to my heart this morning, speak to our hearts this morning, that we might know you more, that we might encounter you this morning and leave here better for it, leave here closer to you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus is our greater high priest. This statement is at the heart. It's the thesis, if you like to be more formal, of the passage this morning. And what's more, it remains at the heart of the author's arguments for a significant portion of this book moving forward, clear through the middle of chapter 10. And, 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 and his emphasis should probably prompt us to ask, what is all this talk about Jesus' high priesthood all about? Why is it so important to the writer of Hebrews that he's about to spend the next five-plus chapters unpacking multiple aspects of it? I mean, he's already established in this letter that Jesus is better than the prophets, that he's greater than the angels, that he's more worthy of honor than Moses. We've seen that. But in light of all this, what's so significant about the high priesthood? Well, as we often find ourselves doing in the book of Hebrews, we're picking up a story that's already in progress. We're jumping in in media ray. Not only are we reading something that was written nearly 2,000 years ago, but it was written to a Jewish Christian audience who traced their history and culture back thousands of years before that. And at the center of that history and culture was the temple in Jerusalem and the tabernacle before it. For that is where God dwelt in the midst of his people and where his people could meet with him. And at the very heart of the temple and tabernacle was an inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And that's where God's manifest presence on earth resided. This inner sanctum was separated from the rest of the temple by a thick curtain. And through that curtain, only one man passed, the high priest, and him only once a year on the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> Told you my voice is going to be coming in and out. On this one day each year, the high priest would he'd make preparations and he'd enter into the Holy of Holies, coming into God's presence. He would make atonement for the sins of the people by sprinkling 
the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat of the ark, which symbolized God's throne. And once he finished that, the high priest would leave, and no one would enter again for the whole year until the next day of atonement. That was it. No one else in, no one else out. Especially no one else out. You guys ever seen, you guys remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Anyone? Show of hands, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay. If your hand's not going up, shame on you. It's on Netflix. Um, and there's going to be spoilers. Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark is kind of what it sounds like. It is a pursuit of the Lost Ark of the Covenant. And toward the end of the movie, there's a scene where um, the Nazis, it takes place during World War II or just before, um, had taken the Ark of the Covenant to a remote desert location. And the main antagonist of our intrepid archaeologist, the main antagonist was a French archaeologist named Belloc. And he tries to open up the Ark so that he can talk with God. And well, we can just say that it didn't end well for him didn't end well for the Nazis, and it didn't end well for the props they used for the scene. But Now, I'm not saying we necessarily want to draw our biblical knowledge from a Steven Spielberg movie, especially one written by George Lucas, but this scene does kind of capture some of the awe and some of the, the fear and some of what Scripture says about approaching the presence of God unworthily, approaching it in an improper or a haughty manner. It captures a little bit of that scene of Nadab and Abihu who thought they could enter into God's presence in any way they saw fit, and the Lord struck them down. There's something about that. Only one man, one day later, could enter into the presence of God. It was only in the person and work of the high priest that Israel, you draw near to the throne of God, receiving mercy from the grace and assurance of God's continued presence among them. As such, the high priesthood was an essential element in Judaism. But in our passage this morning, the author identifies Jesus as a greater high priest, as one who transcends even Aaron himself. And the author's case here can essentially be broken down into three main sections. The first, consisting of chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. In this section, the author asserts that in Jesus Christ, we have a great high priest who's passed through or ascended into the heavens, one who is familiar with all our weaknesses and temptations, yet without sin, and one who makes a way for us to draw near to the very throne of heaven, into the very presence of God with confidence and assurance, that we'll receive not, not fire and death, but mercy and grace to help in time of need. The next two sections, consisting of um, the verses in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, serve kind of as a commentary or an exposition on this first section. In verses 1 through 4, the author outlines the requirements of the Jewish high priesthood. First, in verse 1, he says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. Relate to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The high priest must, be, must have been a representative of the people. He couldn't be unfamiliar with their situation. He had to know them. And the second verse builds on that where he says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Not only must the high priest be from among the people, he must be able to, to sympathize with them, to know their struggles and their weaknesses. He has to know their plight. And third, in verse 4, the third requirement, the author says, No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. 
a high priest, essentially, is called by God. He doesn't appoint himself. He doesn't volunteer. He's called by God. And then in the last section, verses 5 through 10 of chapter 5, the author of Hebrews demonstrates the truth of what he asserted in the first section by showing how Jesus fulfills and even exceeds the requirements of the high priesthood that he just laid out in the second section. He asks, was he called by God? Yes, he was, he says. In verses 5 through 6, the author quotes from Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 110-4, writing, Christ did exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says also another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Is he a sympathetic? Is he sympathetic to the plight of the people? Yes, the author says. In verses 7 through 8, he writes, In his flesh, Jesus offered up prayer and supplication cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Does Jesus faithfully represent the people to God? The author again answers yes in verses 8 through 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. All this to say, where the high priest would once a year pass through the veil of the Holy of Holies, Jesus passed through the heavens themselves, entering not into a sanctuary made of human hands, but into the very sanctuary of heaven itself. Where the high priest could sympathize with the people's weaknesses and temptations because he too was a sinner, Jesus could sympathize having experienced all that we do, yet without sin. Where the high priest drew near to an earthly representation of God's throne, Jesus entered into the very throne room of heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And where the high priest was called by God from among the people, Jesus was not only called by God from among the people, he was sent by God to the people. He's not only a perfect representative before God, he is God's perfect representative to us. He's the Son of Man and the Son of God. And where the high priest could only be a descendant of Aaron's priestly line, Christ himself was descended from the royal line of David. And as such, not only surpasses Aaron and his descendants, he's of a different priestly order altogether. As Hebrews 5.10 says, being designated a priest by God after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, in Christ, the role of high priesthood was fulfilled. In him, the work of high priesthood was finally completed. Because of his high priestly work, yearly sacrifices are no longer required. And through him, we now have access. We have access to the throne of God, not on earth, but in heaven itself. So for the Jewish Christian audience of this letter, many of whom were facing pressure from both the religious leaders in Jerusalem, from the Roman authorities to give up this new faith in this carpenter from Nazareth and to return to the well-established and recognized religion of Judaism, this reality of Christ's greater high priesthood was a clear call to stand fast and to cling to the good news of their Messiah. But what's more, in Christ, the blessing, the blessing God promised to Abraham 
that would be for all peoples is finally revealed. For in his high priestly work, the promise of salvation is made available to who? To all who obey him and call upon his name. And that means that even though most of us here did not grow up in Judaism, and none of us here grew up going to the temple in Jerusalem unless you guys look really good for your age. Really, really good. We are all of us who call the name of, the G- name of Jesus under the blessing of his high priesthood. His work applies to us no less today than it did to them nearly 2,000 years ago. In Jesus Christ, we have a greater high priest. But what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us? Isn't it enough that I know that Jesus is my Savior? Isn't it enough that we know him as Lord, as coming King? What does this emphasis, the author's emphasis on his high priesthood mean for us today? This question is where I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning, wrestling with what Jesus' great and heavenly high priesthood means for us. And we're going to do that by taking a look, a closer look, at uh, the last verses in chapter 14, uh, uh, chapter, uh, sorry, in chapter 4, excuse me, verses 14 through 16. In these verses, we're going to see three pairs of truths and corresponding exhortations. First truth is that we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens. So, the author said, let us hold fast our confession. Second, we have a high priest who intimately knows our plight. So let us take heart, no matter the circumstances. And third, we have a high priest who is full of mercy and grace. So let us, with confidence, draw near to the throne of God. Are you guys still with me? Did I lose you somewhere around Melchizedek? Seriously, we're we're moving on. So shake it off. It's going to get good. Look with me at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The author here in this verse is directly comparing and contrasting the heavenly ministry of Jesus to the earthly ministry of the high priest, particularly on that day of atonement we talked about earlier. Leviticus 16 tells us that each year on that holy day, the high priest of Israel was to make very careful and precise ceremonial preparations involving bathing, involving particular clothing, extended seclusion, a whole bunch of stuff. And then at the right time, he would pass through the veil, having made sacrifices into the Holy of Holies within the temple, and he would offer the blood of the sacrifices, first for himself and his house, and then for the sins of Israel. And as the Lord commanded Aaron, each year from generation to generation, this practice was carried out. But now, the author says, in Jesus, we have a high priest who's passed through not only the thick and dark cloth of the temple veil into the Holy of Holies made with human hands, but he has passed through heavens themselves, entering into the heavenly temple itself, into the very presence of God the Father who sent him. We have a high priest only atones for one year and must be repeated over and over again with each passing year, but one whose sacrifice atones for all times. We have a high priest who represents not only one people, but represents all those drawn from all tribes and tongues who call upon his name. As the author would later write in chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, for Christ has entered into has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Because we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens, whose work on our behalf is finished, let us hold fast our confession, the author says. We have a high priest who's passed through the heavens themselves, so let us today hold fast our confession. And it's important to note here what the author means by confession. When we use the word, we usually mean one of two things. We either mean admitting something we've done wrong, a crime or a sin, okay? Or it means kind of revealing some hidden truth about ourselves, something that we don't like to talk about, like, I don't know, like I, I don't hate the Star Wars prequels. You know, that's, like, that's a confession. Or, um, I don't know, I kind of like Taylor Swift music. I'm not sure. That would be a confession. Not my confession necessarily, but someone's, I'm sure. But either way, when we do this, when, when we use <laughs> Dan's confession, right? Um, when, we, uh, when we use the word confession, we meet it in a negative sense. But that's not what the author means here. What the author means here is, um, sorry, excuse me, I've lost my place. So when we use the word confession, either way, we tend to use it in a negative sense. However, what the author means here, what he's calling us to, is we are to confess or profess our faith boldly. Let us hold fast our confession is by boldly holding fast to it. Not timidly admitting that we like, you know, Taylor Swift music but by boldly holding fast to our confession in Christ. And we, we hold fast our confession by daily drawing our hearts and minds to the truth found in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for the sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. We fix our eyes on that. That's the first thing we do, and that's how we hold fast our confession. We hold fast our confession by walking it out, by centering our lives upon the truth that Jesus, our great high priest, has gone before us into the heavens and has made a way for us to follow him. We hold fast our confession by exhorting and encouraging one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ, by coming alongside them and reminding them that in the words of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So let us lay aside every weight and sin which so clingsly, so so clingsly close. So clings so clings so closely. Sorry guys. I'm breaking down here. So we we remind one another, we exhort one another, we encourage one another with chap with verses like chapter twelve, verses one and two. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. We hold fast our confession. We also hold fast our confession by making Jesus known, by declaring who our great high priest is and what he's done on our behalf. As First Peter puts it in chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
we hold fast our confession because we have a high priest who's gone before us into the heavens. And because he is there and his work is finished, we can make known that good news. We hold fast our confession by sharing that, by encouraging one another, and by always looking to him. Are you still with me? We're looking at verse 15 now. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, if you're anything like me, you probably read a verse like that and just think to yourself, yeah, was Jesus really tempted like I am? I don't know, maybe that's just me. Did he really experience weakness like I do, suffering like we do? I mean, come on, he's God. He doesn't experience it like I do, does he? I think when we read passages like the temptation narratives of the gospel, we can sometimes envision uh, the devil's taunts and his temptation sort of bouncing off Jesus like bullets off Superman. Am I right? Or is it just me? Maybe it's just me. Maybe this is my confession to you guys. And I have a hard, you know. But I think sometimes we have so, we we can be asked like, is Jesus God and man? We'll say, yeah, 100% God, 100% man. That's what I believe. But I just wonder, do we really, do we let that sink in? I think we've so established, so hammered home the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that we often breeze over the unfathomable truth that he's also a man. He's also the offspring of Eve, the creator, now a descendant of his creation. And I pause here to talk about this with this verse. I think if we think of Jesus like Superman, kind of like Superman dressed up as Clark Kent, he puts glasses on, he goes to work, but really he's Superman. If we think of him like that, as God dressed up in a human costume, like he's going around the neighborhood trick-or-treating, then we'll miss out on the power of what the author is saying here. We'll begin to lose heart. However, if we believe, as the author wrote earlier in Hebrews 2, verses 17 through 18, that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, then we have hope. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to make those who are be- he's able to help those who are being tempted. And this is so important, because Jesus isn't up there looking down saying, dude, what is your problem? Like, he's not in heaven thinking to himself, I just don't get these people. What's their deal? What's going on with them? Instead, in Jesus we have a high priest who intimately knows our plight. He intimately knows our condition. We have a high priest of surpassing sympathy who knows our weaknesses, not just because he's our creator, but because he took on our humanity, our full humanity, took on our body, took on our mind, took on our emotions. We don't have a high priest who's who's distant and removed from us, but one who is like us in every way, even in all of our varied temptations, except without sin. He's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He's experienced the full brunt of temptation. If you think about that, every time that we're tempted to sin and we give in, the temptation ends. And then we go into like, oh, I'm so sorry, I wish I hadn't done that, or something along those lines, depending on who you are. But Jesus never gave in. He experienced the full force of our temptations. And because of this, the author is encouraging us that we can take 
heart in all of our circumstances. No matter what we're experiencing, we can take heart knowing that Jesus has gone before us. In our moments of weakness, let us take heart and come to him because he knows what it's like to feel weak. In our hurts and losses, in our hardships and suffering, let us take heart and find comfort in him because he's been there himself. He's familiar with our pain. In all of our temptations, let us take heart and cry out to him because, like we just said, there's no temptation that we could experience that's alien to him. And in our sins and brokenness, let us take heart and run to him, knowing that he, the sinless one, has paid the price once and for all at the cross. He's paid the price, and all of our sins are in him forgiven. You can say amen there. Okay. All right, we are awake. Okay. All of our sins in him are forgiven. Okay, so look with me at the last, uh, last, chap- last verse of chapter 4. Because we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens, we have a high priest who, who intimately knows our plight. Now in verse 16 of chapter 4, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is one of, the most, one of the most sublime verses in all the Bible because it brings all of Scripture up to this point full circle. Just think with me back to the beginning when God created man and woman in his own image and he placed them in the garden. He placed them there where they could represent him to the world and meet with him without fear. He commissioned And when he did that, he commissioned the first man, Adam, to work and keep the garden, to serve and guard it. In essence, he commissioned Adam to be the high priest of creation. And Eden was his temple, was a temple in which he served. But sadly, man, the steward of God's creation, the priest of his garden temple, listened to the voice of the enemy. And we know that story well. The voice of the serpent who came in to the garden, and man sinned, and as a result was cast out, but not just out of the garden paradise, but out of the temple of God's presence. And we're told at the end of Genesis chapter 3 that the way back was guarded by an angel with a fiery sword. But God was not content to leave man wandering, lost and alone away from his presence. And he promised that one day an offspring would come who would crush the serpent, undoing the separation wrought by sin, and once again restore man to that close fellowship and communion with God. And throughout the Old Testament, the covenants God made with his people, the covenants he made with Abraham, the covenant he made with Abraham to bless all peoples through his offspring, the covenant he made with Israel at Sinai to make them into a nation, the covenant God made with David to preserve his throne for all time. These carried this promise forward. The high priesthood of Aaron and his descendants, the sacrificial system of the tabernacle, the temple, the yearly day of atonement served to remind the people that God promised to one day restore all that Adam lost. And so throughout the years, the faithful waited, be they prophets or shepherds, judges or maids, kings or priests, all waited for the promised offspring. And as the author would write, Later in this letter, in chapter 11, 
All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And now the author assures us the promised one, the offspring of Eve, the descendant of Abraham, the son of David, has now come. And that in him, in Jesus, we have a high priest who is full of mercy and grace, who is now seated and resting from his finished work at the right hand of God in heaven. And what's more, he bids us to come. He bids us to come with boldness to the throne, to the throne not of judgment, not of condemnation, not of dread, but to the throne of grace and to the very presence of God that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. No longer a cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the way into God's presence, but we come, later on the book says, we come to innumerable angels in festal or in celebratory garb and gathering. No longer do we come to thunder and lightning on a smoking mountain and the command to keep our distance from the presence of God, but we come to the open arms of our Savior and high priest who's welcoming us into the presence of his Heavenly Father. No longer a thick veil that only one man, one day a year, could fearfully pass through. But as the author says in chapter 10, but a new and living way that our high priest opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, that we may draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and with our blood, with our blood, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In Christ, we have a high priest full of mercy and grace. So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of God. We have a high priest who's full of mercy and grace. So let us with confidence draw near. Let us draw near in worship. Let us draw near in prayer. Let us draw near in times of celebration and in times of lament. Let us draw near in our seasons of victory when all is going so well and in times of trouble when all seems lost. Let us draw near when we feel loved and and we feel Whatever, I don't know, when we feel loved. But let us also draw near when we feel alone, when we feel isolated. So let us draw near what all seems right in the world. And let us draw near when everything's crumbling down around us. Let us draw near when our faith is strong. And let us draw near, maybe nearer still, when our doubts threaten to overwhelm us. Let us draw near when we are running well. And let us draw near when we stumble into sin. Let us draw near that we may receive mercy, that we may, that we may receive grace, and that we may know anew and afresh the love and forgiveness flowing from the heart of our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father, who, as John 3.16 says, so loved the world that he gave his only Son to be our high priest, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let us draw near. Amen? This morning,
as we do every week, we come to the communion table. And I really can think of no more appropriate way to include our time in Hebrews this morning than coming here. For here at this table, we confess together our great high priest who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and who has passed through the heavens themselves, bearing our atonement in his wake. Here at the table, we together take heart, remembering that in Jesus Christ, we have a high priest who knows us and who sympathizes with our plight. And here we remember that we have a high priest who is full of mercy and grace, who beckons us to come to draw near confidence to the throne of God without fear of condemnation, that we may find help in our time of need. Here we come, not to a temple made of stone, but as the author of Hebrews wrote later in chapter 12, we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This broken bread before us reminds Christ's body, which was broken for us as a sacrifice for our sins. The cup reminds us of Christ's blood, which was poured out on our behalf to wash us clean. Taken together, they remind us that what he has done cannot be undone, that the grace of our great high priest has been poured out in our lives, and it won't leave us, and it won't leave us unchanged either. And even though we still live in a world full of hardship and temptation, a world that groans under the futility of sin, under the shadow of death, under the oppression of that serpent that crept into the garden oh so far, oh so long ago, we have a Savior, a high priest, who has finished his work. We have a high priest who's overcome sin by his shed blood, who has defeated the grave through his resurrection and has laid low the schemes of the devil through his perfect obedience to his Father and love for his people. And who is now, who has now passed through the heavens and into the presence of his Father, where he bids us to come and find mercy and grace in our times of need. And if you're like me this morning, this is a message we need to hear over and over again. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then please come celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. The way we celebrate the Supper is we form two lines here in the middle. Um, we break up a piece of the bread and we dip it into the cup. There's also gluten-free bread here in the center for those of you that don't like flavor. And I just want to say, if you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, and I would ask that you, I would encourage you to, to refrain from taking part in the Lord's Supper with us, but at the same time, I'd ask you to, to maybe read over some of the prayers and the worship guide you, you got when coming in. Maybe meditate on this passage this morning. Just God, just ask God to open your heart to this great high priest. Open your heart to this good news that we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you that you, that in your Son, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. We thank you that in Jesus we may draw near to the throne of grace, that you have mercy for us, that you have grace to help in time of need, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we won't leave here without drawing close to your heart this morning, no matter where we are, whether we're in seasons of victory 
or seasons of defeat, whether we are hurting or on top of the world, Lord, no matter what we're facing, God, I pray, I pray that your spirit would lead us to the throne of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.